it's in the air, this could be out. Diamond's underneath it, will he catch it? He's got good hands, he's got him, yes he has. Diamond's got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. It went wild in the air, he's got him 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 in the air, she talks about her playing career for the White Ferns, current state of women's cricket in New Zealand and around the world, her memories from losing a close final to Australia, and her retirement from the game earlier this year, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thank you, Smash. It's uh, my pleasure having you on. Um, New Zealand, as it is, it's a, it's a rugby country. You know, uh, what got you motivated to pursue cricket as a profession? Because I read in an interview uh, that you had done a while ago that uh, you didn't really want to be a cricketer growing up. Yeah, I guess I grew up in a small country town and and if uh, any other New Zealanders have been interviewed from a rural background, it's what you do is you play every sport because there's only so many uh, kids in the the school. So I played every sport, including rugby, uh, cricket, netball, tennis, Football, everything that was going, and and because of the numbers of the school, you were you were in every team as well. So, um, and so I always did play cricket, but never in an organised fashion as as part of a, a I guess a day in a week in week out team. But uh, so then, uh, what got you to focus um, entirely on cricket and become you know a professional in there and then play for the nation eventually? It was just through people selecting me, so. Uh, Pat Malkin from Northern District saw me play in a school game in college and basically picked me up. And by the end of college, I um, I was in the national team, so it caught me a little caught me a little off guard. Hmm. I see, I see. I guess uh, that explains you becoming an all rounder too, trying out everything and then eventually, you know, picking cricket. And you were good with both bat and ball, I suppose. Yeah, I started as a bowler because um, obviously, as you can envision. Grabbing the ball and having a bowl is a bit more of a simpler task than the range of different cricket strokes that you need to to master. Mm. Um, However, after the first few games, I must admit, waiting three hours on the sideline, I got a little bored. Um, So so that's why I was like, well, I think I need to uh, learn how to bat as well. So that's that's how the all-rounder thing developed. Mm. Fantastic. New Zealand, uh, along with England and Australia, have been at the forefront of the women's game. Um, you know, recently, I think it was last year or towards the end of uh, 2013, that uh, New Zealand announced the first set of uh, you know contracts, professional contracts for cricketers. Uh, initially, they had a small group, and then they have expanded further. Um, how have you seen the maturing of women's cricket in your time of playing it? In New Zealand? Um, to be honest, when I first came into the team, I had the likes of Debbie Hockley, Emily Drum, and Rebecca Rolls, and they were actually some of the most professional athletes um, I've really come across, if I was being completely honest. I think of recent times, some of the girls, they probably don't have that same... Uh, they all have the drive, but the, that, these these girls and ladies, when I came into it, were, were very dedicated and had very, very high standards of themselves. Mm. And um, I think the the other thing that probably impacted the game was T20 cricket. I mm. think with the in- introduction of T20 cricket, it, it's, it probably appealed to the New Zealand female athlete, and it certainly has brought a lot of um, natural 
sportswoman through, mm. and that's probably made the biggest impact of the game because we have been able to attract and maintain the likes of Susie Bates and Sophie Devine, um, who could quite easily have pursued their other um, sporting codes. Mm. So um, in terms of the contract side of things, I, it's not enough to to make a significant difference. I mean, I hear um, Alex Blackwell and one of the other Australian Southern Stars have gone to spend two months or six weeks in a row in an academy in England or something like that. And Mm -hmm. you're really going to be able to see the skill level's not going to improve, but the consistency is. And and that, for me, is the difference between a good and a great player is someone who can take their highest level of natural and and learnt skill set and consistently play at it. You know, like Brendan McCullum, who mm. can consistently play at that level. So, so consistency is what's going to be gained from from these contracts, and and that's where I believe that that secret lies. So, I mean, there, there is of course, you know, as you mentioned, schools cricket, and then there is a domestic game, and then from there on, you have the international game. Um, you know, you hear when it comes to the men's side of the things, you. Of course, you hear about the international stars, but you also have sizable following for the domestic game um, for what it is. Um, but we never really hear about the domestic side of women's cricket. Um, could you talk a bit about that side of it uh, as with respect to New Zealand? Sure. It's, <clears throat> the domestic women's uh, competition is, is well supported. I mean, that's one thing that cricket does have. Um, is for the females, apart from netball and to a touch, to a, to a degree, hockey and rugby, but generally cricket is well supported. So the domestic players do not have to pay uh, to play. Um, so that's that's really a great pulling point. I think the biggest one is, is the numbers attracted to the game. For females, the game is netball is the national game. For men, it's rugby. For, for females, it's netball. And there's not a huge number of uh, young females playing cricket. I think that's going to increase, as always, especially as um, generally the, the game gets more attractive with contracts and, and the likes. Um, but it, there's still such a, a vast drop-off. You know, you've got girls that make the team mm-hmm. anywhere between 13 and 15 years old. Um and then you've kind of got 31 and, and 32-year-olds playing. So there's such a, a dramatic drop-off that to have, I guess, um, a quality competitive competition, it, it, it hasn't quite got that stature yet. And it's the same name stepping up and, and producing the results. And with that comes often those top players. We can afford to make mistakes and get away with it, at domestic level, because you, you know, you are playing against weaker opposition, Correct. and you step up into the international scene, and what was working at domestic all of a sudden is not working um, at international because you don't get the loose balls and, and you don't get that second chance. So, I think that also that falls into it. I mean, in, in India, you know, I had interviewed a uh, player that represented India. Now she's playing in a domestic side. Um, they're all, a lot of them have uh, day jobs with, 
you know, a government concern, like, for example, uh, railways, Indian railways, whether it's different zones, you know, central, west, east, etc. Um, does that sort of thing exist for domestic cricketers in New Zealand so that, you know, yeah, they come to office, do some work, but then they can go and uh, train and they don't have to worry about making ends meet? Um, no, I really I enjoyed that setup when I heard about it uh, with Amita Sharma and Julianne Goswami, who you know I've played my whole international career with, so I, I know them quite well. Um, we do have university and, and scholarships to university, so as I said, often girls will start playing around 15, 16, and then um, the average age of a white fern. Uh, someone did the statistics, was somewhere between 18 and 19 years old. Yeah. And at that stage, they go to university. And um, so for the first kind of three, four or five years of their cricketing career, it's studying. So it allows that, that, that flexibility you, t- you talk about. Mm-hmm. And then after that is where we struggle. And girls can go off and get, and get roles. Um, but often they're full-time roles, and and this is where the girls should be making the most impact. But their game probably fades away. I see. And do you do you see any uh, in the future anyway uh, where that sort of thing can be corrected? Do you see any uh, ways of correcting it? You know, I actually started a a, a charity um, with the intention of connecting and making businesses more aware of the athletes that are out there and what they need, mm. that they need those part-time flexible roles and, and getting to th- them to think a little bit more strategically how they could actually integrate um, an elite amateur athlete into their business, which would require quite a degree of flexibility um, and probably a lot of uh, teaching on their behalf because – you know, learning a new skill over a period of time without consistency of availability, but in the end being able to capitalise off their profile um, and, and then helping with that transition of the athlete ladder in life. That was a very difficult um, concept to make succeed, um, mm. and it's something that I'd l- like to revisit mm. again in the future. So, But you, what you need is you need, which I've been very lucky at, is you need to find that, that, that business person that is passionate about sport or or understands high performance and is, and is willing to, to have that as part of their business. However, in New Zealand, we've made up a lot of small and medium business um, owners, and, and, and that's not always an option for them. Hmm. So, You played for the uh, ACT Meteors in the Women's National Cricket League in Australia, um, and there's going to be a... Uh, you know, women's equivalent of the Big Bash League starting 2015-16 season in Australia as well, um, you know, women's T20 competition, um, you know, replacing the existing state sides. Um, how do you see any of that playing any role, not just uh, developing future women cricketers in Australia, but in New Zealand because you're geographically close by and perhaps uh, somewhere else too? I think it's certainly something that was had been talked about for a while. I mean, when the IPL first came on board, I remember being in Dubai in 2008 mm-hmm. and um, the talk of, you know, an opportunity like that happening. Um, but obviously Australia's got the first first jump on it and I think, you know, their strategic focus of making um, cricket the number one women's sport, summer sport, um, 
you can see their investment in the game and you can see the uptake uh, of numbers. So I think what they're creating over there is, is really exciting. And I guess going into line with a men's team, with men's teams, has both positive and negative. Um, one, obviously, to, to capture on the brand and the excitement and the following mm-hmm. that's already already created is, is wonderful. Um, but sometimes the thing that you love doing the most, which is playing the game, uh, can sometimes be affected. So, for example, if you play a double header, the men's game has to start on time. So, all of a sudden, your game could actually finish early or not even happen because of um, the men's game, you know, it's penciled in already. So, that's happened on a few occasions. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a positive step. I think that in the meantime, Australia are probably going to lose out on a couple of things because their domestic competition is going to have to change. Mm-hmm. But and, and they, I guess they have to spread out because Victoria and New South Wales have the strongest team. I think they're yeah. going to spread out that uh, talent around the uh, eight different franchises. So perhaps, you know, uh, I, I guess that is also good and bad. Eh? Correct, yeah, yeah. And team dynamics are going to have to change and, and people are going to have to shift. And I think the uh, introduction of an opportunity for New Zealand, you're right, it's 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 be interesting to see how New Zealand reacts to it given the timing of the competition is when we play a lot of our domestic competition because one of weather and two of ground availability. Mm-hmm. So that will be interesting. Um, the injection of... English players last year in the competition was quite evident, and with them becoming full-time contractors, um, I think we'll see a lot more of them. So, and as you mentioned earlier, the Australia, England, and New Zealand, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit West Indies do hold the top players. So this is almost becoming a bit of a bit of a Super League um, mm. with you know those top players from around the world. So it's. It will be exciting, and it will be interesting to see how the first season goes, and then and what changes they make for the second. So I'll be I'll be watching with a keen interest. Um, I want to talk a bit about your career. You know, you were the uh, player of the tournament in uh, the 2010 World T20 that was held in West Indies. Um, New Zealand lost to Australia by three runs. Um, you took two two wickets for 11 runs in uh, the final. Um, and you came in and scored 20-odd runs. While, when you came in, it was 5 for 36 in a chase of 100-something. Um, your memories of that final, and does it still hurt you that a world title pretty, you know, slipped from your grasp? It was, it's quite a pivotal game, that one, for me. Um, we touched on the fact of our domestic competition not being too strong, and... It's those pressure games. You've got to learn how to play finals. Um, I mean, that was our third final that we were in, and we, we had taken a lot of great lessons from the previous finals. I think the one thing that probably sticks in my mind is, and it, maybe it's one thing I... It took me a while to, to crack in my career, and, and whether to say that I ever got it or not, but that run chase and, and staying with... Um, the score. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was a period of time that the boundaries were bigger, mm-hmm. and previously the games we'd played, we you could just hit out. I see. And um, it was a big risk to hit out, uh, and and rather than backing myself, 
Um, I just worked it around, and, and that potentially before Sophie went. We both knew we had the power, um, but I think we waited too long. And so, yeah, it, it, it definitely it still hurts, and maybe people in life have got to learn certain lessons. Um, and sometimes we take ages to learn those lessons. Um, but, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> so I think the biggest thing that I learned probably from my, there's two things that I learned from my time in cricket. One was resilience, uh, especially in the latter half of my career where the White Ferns did tend to lose a lot more than we won. Hmm. Um, certainly in my domestic career that was the case. So I learned resilience just to get back up every day and, and keep, keep the passion to be the best that you can despite the results Mm. Um, and I also learned and probably still need to learn is just to completely let go and and trust and not overthink and completely listen to your gut and um, that steers you in good good shape Uh, you know I went to watch a you know back to back T20s one women's T20 and then a men's T20 you know uh, in Australia um, it's striking the strategies involved uh, because the strategy or the flow of the game, etc., etc., in a men's T20 is very obvious. You know, there is a lot of pace, there is a lot of big hitting. Whereas uh, the women's game is, you know, you have to involve yourself as a viewer to understand the finer things that are done uh, because it's not, you know, you don't have generally people bowling at 90, 90 miles an hour or whatever, or people swinging for the fences all the time. Um, you know, how does the strategy, I mean, because basically what I'm asking is, what is it expected of the viewer? Because generally people say like, oh yeah, I prefer the men's T20 because it's more fun. Whereas there is a lot more to uh, understand um, and enjoy in a women's game as well. So in terms of strategy, um, how does it work in, in the women's game as with respect to the men's? Well, I think you've probably hit the nail on the head, Shabash. I think it's exactly, it's probably uh, male counterparts, whether it be commentators or journalists, describing and being the voice to the public that this is the difference between the games. Mm. Um, and we can liken it very much to women's tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, men, men's tennis game, ace, um, you know, and that's, that could be a whole set where a female's rally can go for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's the message that we do um, need to get out there is there's actually that, that finer detail and being able to showcase that and describe that to probably the less uh, knowledgeable cricketer and in that's the thing that captures you about cricket. You know, I guess I learned to love cricket. Um, the more I knew about cricket, the more I loved it because of all the different intricacies with it and, and the different elements. And and it was almost like all sports wrapped up into one, you know. There was just so many, so many different, you know, when you used to write out the, the skills that you wanted to work on and each of the different, you know, disciplines, there's just so many to work on. And I think that's the magical part about the game. And, and you're right, the females do probably have to dive a little deeper into that and have that more 360-degree game and and create pace on the ball. And if you ever bowl a slower ball to a, a male, they also quite, find it quite difficult to, to hit. I won't lie, I'd, I'd love to see the boundary smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a takeoff of, of from females, but 
just in relation to power, because um, then it does bring that, that element in. But I think generally females are, uh, with this period where girls can train for longer, they're going to get the timing mm-hmm. and rhythm. And I think collectively with bowling rhythm and batting timing, you'll see a lot more dynamic um, shot making. So I think we'll have elements of, of both in it and, and can lead often, as you hear, um, uh, a long-term patron of the game who eventually comes to watch a female's game, they go, oh, didn't know they played like that. That was really enjoyable. So uh, it's probably just you know a snowball effect and a numbers and, and the opportunity to get it, get out there and in front of them and in creating that that um, that lover of the female brand of cricket. Hmm. You know, you played. I mean, you retired uh, when you were thirty, uh, and you played more than one hundred eighty games of cricket for New Zealand. Are there any fond uh, on-field memories uh, that uh, still stay with you? Um, anything that uh, you look back on and uh, see that, yeah, that was fun. There's probably, there's probably three parts that spring to mind. Uh, one early in my career where we probably came off the back of the World Cup winning team from 2001. There were a lot of players in there that were, as I, as I said earlier, of a very high level and really set the standard for my career. And we won a lot of games back then. So I really enjoyed that part of my career coming in and, and having a lot of wins with the White Ferns. Hmm. Um, the second part was probably that period between 2000 and in 2010 where I guess as all players experience the high of their career where they they finally work it out before the opposition work it out mm-hmm. um, and so you enjoy that that time where you get to to play at your best and all that hard work pays off and and it's it's such a exciting time because you're learning and just discovering and, and finally putting it out there so I think that's an enjoy always an enjoyable time for for a player, and then they work you out, and uh, you can, the, the improvements are then uh, only incremental. But the the last phase of my career, I wanted to do something different that I called um, magic moments. Those moments that you can't train for, and um, as I talked about from the 2010 mm-hmm. final, the lesson I had to learn of letting go. Mm-hmm. And um, there were there were two occasions in which I completely let go. One was this catch in the 2013 World Cup versus England that I took this catch running in from the boundary that shouldn't have been a catch mm. and um, actually kind of had a, an out-of-body experience where I actually saw myself catching it from a distance and, and that was the most incredible feeling that I've, I've experienced of complete freedom. Um, and the other highlight I remember was often we always found ourselves in the situation against Australia that we needed a lot of not many and um, being the position I was always in, and that may have been through my um, inability to keep up with the score, but we always needed you know, a lot of runs. So we needed 36 off um, eight balls, and, um, well, sorry, we had yeah, two overs, 12 balls, and, and I completed that in, in eight. Hmm. Wow. Um, and that was a surreal... Surreal feeling when I hit six after six after, and then they moved the field and you placed it for four and, and hit a six to win. And you know that was that was probably um, that was a, a healing thing, probably from the World Cups and the many other games that I finally chased down one of those uh, those un, 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 unattainable scores. So um, 
That was that was enjoyable. Those are some fun memories. You had retired in January of this year, but there was another time when you had previously retired as well, and then you made a comeback uh, due to a medical condition. Um, could you talk about that? Yeah, that was um, that was shortly after the 2010. So again, I'd probably achieved um, a lot over that period, and and I came away um, really tired. And I kind of felt it was, I talked to a few people about when do you know it's the right time to retire and they said, oh, you you probably lack the the motivation to to train at the level that you once did. And that's what I, I gave myself kind of eight eight to nine months to come back around, but I just never picked up the energy to to train and so made the call to retire. But unfortunately, two weeks later, I found out that and got diagnosed with celiac disease and which is an intolerance to gluten and... um, a reaction to gluten that doesn't allow you to absorb the nutrients from food, hence mm-hmm. the tiredness. So um, on, once I was onto a gluten-free diet, I I sprang back to life and and uh, loved life more than I have for a very long time. So um, thought it would be a good idea to give it one more crack. And plus, I was still quite young, and um, and there was a few things left left to to achieve. But to be fair, I, reflecting on it. I haven't had the same um, ambition for the game that I did after 2010, and, and maybe these last four years have been a bit more of a way to, to transition into another phase of life because I gave, I gave my whole self for, um, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I did retire, I suddenly looked around and, and didn't see many other pathways because um, I was so entrenched in cricket. So the, the kind of last three or four years gave me the opportunity to to create some new pathways for myself. So, I mean, you're still quite young. Um, I am, yeah. <laughs> and you've already, you know, we've had a whole professional sports career and you've moved on. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, say, the ground realities of playing a women's professional sport um, were to be different, where, let's say, it's a little bit more financially rewarding, a little bit more security around um, your future, would you have continued with cricket? I think, yeah, I think I definitely would have had a, um, a few year, few more years in me, and, and I also would have probably, you know, definitely looked into other ways to capitalise on the, the money that that I had earned to ensure some longevity out of it. So the, the path would certainly look, look different. Um, and, I, and the money side, it is, it is difficult. Um, however, I think what it came down to, there's a number of things it came down to. Um, there's three things. There was the financial side. Um, there, there was a bit of not... not frustration with New Zealand cricket but you know I just wanted so badly for there to be more more female players in the game and, and for for the domestic and international scene to be more competitive and I know that I've actually I've actually got to play a part in that mm-hmm. um, and, and as a player that's not how I'll play a part so that's probably it was probably more frustration at myself not understanding how I could uh, impact on that. And and the third thing is um, new experiences. When I th- thought about going on another tour or hitting the gym to train cricket again, and um, versus going on a, a new experience 
or a road trip or something like that. I certainly got more excited about the new experience. And I think life, and what I love so much about cricket is that it, it gave you so many experiences. And, and from those experiences, whether they were the positive or negative, you were able to, to grow and develop a deeper understanding and awareness of oneself. And I think that's what I truly love. And that's why I'm so thankful for to cricket for all those amazing experiences. And, and I'm really keen to probably have more different experiences in life now um, so I can learn and grow in, in other aspects of, of myself. So that's that's also what it came down to. When, when you look back on your career, as I said, you had played more than 180 games for New Zealand, but there were only you appeared in only two test matches. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it looks like... Um, I mean, there was a eight. I think it was an eight-year period where, you know, India didn't play a Test match till they went to England recently. It seems like only England and Australia play any kind of Test match cricket. And I mean, why is that? That uh, is there not enough uh, players willing to play Test cricket, or there is not enough motivation behind uh, motivation from the uh, people administering the sport to organize these? What what seems to be the issue there? Yeah, there's, there's two things that always pop up. One is um, there's this belief that females can't play a good brand of test cricket. Um, that's that's what was kind of given to us early on in the piece hmm. when we we're asking the question. I think that's probably um, less likely to be the case now. Um, then later on, the introduction of T20 and the financial component is that it was more worthwhile to play a series of five T20s um, and more marketable than, than one test match and, and obviously the finances to extend the tour to include another test match was was unlikely. So um, those were, were the two excuses that I've used so far. So I'm not too sure what the... <laughs> the first excuse of, uh, you know, women players not good enough uh, to play test cricket, which sounds quite hollow. I mean, if anything, um, they should be quite equipped to play test cricket because it is a game of strategy. And women's cricket is that, you know, it's a throwback to an earlier time where, you know, people are trying to pierce the gap and, you know, and you're maneuvering the field around, moving the field around rather than bashing everything. So that, uh, that is bogus in my point of view. Um, <laughs> so would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I think it came down to uh, there was a lot of young players in the team, and to um, in, in that day, they're certainly they're extending their careers now, and and um, you know in terms of loading on 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 young females' bodies and things like that, that that kind of came into it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of girls that would want to play um, a lot more Test matches. That's for sure. Mm. All right. Um, now that uh, you retired in January, um, and you have been you had been part of uh, the Cricket World Cup in New Zealand, um, so what are uh, your plans for the future? And also, when you look back on uh, your career for New Zealand as a cricketer, what are your lasting memories of what you had accomplished? Um, yeah. So, so moving forward, the, there's a FIFA Under Twenty World Cup, which is a time to be part of a, a different sport which will be really neat um and come july i'll have um money and no commitments one of the hmm. <laughs> so two new feelings so the the kind of world and, and the only commitment i've made to myself this year is to to have no commitments this 
these six months to allow new opportunities to open up mm. um, and surround myself with different different people so that those opportunities can open up. So um, after July, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, looking back, I think I'm – look, I can be a bit of a bit of a sh- tree shaker, a bit of a stirrer sometimes. I know that, and I'm probably well known for that um, <laughs> in New Zealand cricket with my – somewhat different opinions to most, um, you know, which I'm, I'm all right with. Um, and I know of, of recent times I've certainly been uh, a bit of a bee in the bonnet to, you know, both domestic and international cricket, and they're probably, they're probably pleased to see the back of me. Um, but um, but when, looking back, I am actually truly, I'm truly grateful for the sport of cricket and and though I, I give them a hard time about support and resources, the compared to most sports out there, the, the support was actually fantastic. Um, you know, all through my career, there's there's nothing that, to a certain extent, that they didn't give me that didn't make me the player that I needed and wanted to be. Um, there wasn't many things they, they weren't able to provide. And, and during some really tough times, whether it be medical conditions or things like that, they they supported me in other ways and whenever I asked. So um, looking back on my career, you're really grateful that that cricket chose me Hmm. Um, and I was able to experience all the different wonders that um, cricket prevails and learn all the lessons um, from the game because there's more more bad days than good in the game of cricket and, and, and... what it's provided with me is I'm I'm fearless going into life now. Um, I you know from from getting up all those days from the, the losses and the failures and and then and then having the successes and I believe I believe I I've had a very successful career um, as a, any high performance athlete thinks they can always be better and that's always there. Um, but I think I had a very successful career. If I look back, there's probably one thing. One thing I would have liked to have done better, and it was probably uh, learn how to to integrate into a, into a team better, or mm. or really understand what a great team culture felt like. I think um, there was a lo- there's a lot of unique personalities in the game of cricket, very unique, and 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 probably have yet to come across a. Um, a coach that's really able would be able to, to mesh all those personalities together to make everyone feel l- like they're part of the team and, and, and not alienated in any way. Hmm. Um, and I also know that my own um, personality can contribute to that as well. So if I look back, that's something that I still would like to understand and maybe on to learn that lesson in, a, in another environment. All right. Um, on that note, Nikki, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. All the very best. Thank you, Shabash. It was wonderful to, to have a chat reflecting back. Yeah. 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 Yeah.